Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. Before we get to the episode, I'd like to tell you that my book, Future on Fire, Capitalism and the Politics of Climate Change, is now available. It's a short book focused on the question of what it would take to achieve climate justice, with some thoughts about why even a ravaged planet is worth fighting for. If you're in Canada, you can order it directly from Fernwood Publishing. Everywhere else, you can order it directly from PM Press, and you can, of course, get it from many independent bookstores. The world is on track to a disastrous level of heating. By the year 2100, according to the uh, organization Climate Action Tracker, we're looking at between 2.5 and 2.9 degrees heating above average pre-industrial temperatures. And of course, global heating is just one aspect of the global ecological crisis, which has many interconnected dimensions, including the extinction of many species, the erosion of soils, chemical pollution, the acidification of oceans, and more. More people are coming to understand that the underlying cause of this ecological crisis is capitalism, and that's one important reason why there's growing interest in different kinds of anti-capitalist politics. So I'm very glad to be joined on this episode of Victor's Children by two guests to discuss eco-socialism. We've got Sabrina Fernandez and Gareth Dale. So Sabrina Fernandez is a Brazilian sociologist and eco-socialist organizer, a contributing editor at Jacobin, formerly the editor-in-chief of Jacobin Brazil. She's the founder and producer of Teze Onze, Uh, which is a major eco-socialist education platform in Brazil, and also a member of the steering committee of the Global Eco-Socialist Network. She's the author of two books and a range of articles and chapters. Uh, One article I'll mention uh, is she co-authored recently a piece called Foreign Eco-Socialist Degrowth, and I'll have that in the show notes for this episode. Gareth Dale uh, from Britain is the author or editor of many books, including one on so-called green growth, and a range of articles in The Ecologist and other publications, including... um, whole number related to the topics that we're discussing today. Uh, One that stands out for me is an article on degrowth and the Green New Deal that Gareth wrote a number of years ago. I'll also include um, a link to that in the show notes. And Gareth's a member of the British group RS21. So thank you, Sabrina and Gareth, for joining uh, me on this episode. And I'm just going to start off with the question about eco-socialism. So why would you say that we actually should be using that term to talk about socialist politics today, why not not just argue for socialism? What's the point of both saying eco-socialism or is there a point? Whichever one of you like to start. (laughs) I can go ahead. Well, first, thank you uh, for having us, David. It's a pleasure to be here at Victor's Children. Um, I would say like I get this question a lot because in fact, eco-socialism is socialism, but there are two reasons why we would say eco-socialism instead. One is that not every socialism out there actually considers the ecological basis 
through historical materialism to understand political economy, levels of production, the impact that we have in society, and how we should actually aspire to have a socialism that is very different from capitalism, not only in the sense of who owns the means of production, but how we produce things, why we produce things, and what we're producing. So understanding um, socialism as a major civilizational change, also in matters of how we impact nature and how we're actually a part of nature as well. So it's important in terms of differentiating it, but also the eco right there is not just a prefix. So it's not just something that we're adding to it to say, well, our socialism here, it's green. It's really very much a part of how we understand society, how we understand our relationship as a human society to nature. It's informed um, even more so in the past 10 to 20 years by new understandings of uh, Marxist basis, for example, around um, capital volume three and Karl Marx talking about the metabolic rift. So there, um, there's a very incredible body of work by a lot of authors who have done a really good job going back to it. We have um, the book by Kohei Saito called Karl Marx Eco-Socialism, trying to look into those bases. So my claim for saying eco-socialism is that we're actually trying to show uh, a different version of socialism here that's more deeply embedded with nature. And our argument could be that because it's more deeply embedded with nature, it's going to do a better job in terms of fixing what's wrong today, uh, uh, making a, counterpo a counterpoint to, to capitalism, and creating a society that's more radically different. Gareth, would you like to add anything on this? Uh, no, I'll pass on that one. Um... Okay. So there are many different kinds of politics that go under the banner of eco-socialism, just as, of course, there are many different kinds of socialist politics in general. Uh, for example, in the, in the Canadian context, there are some people in the Green Party who call themselves eco-socialists, but what they mean when they talk about eco-socialism is really what I would simply call capitalism with ecological and social reforms, which are good reforms, mostly worth fighting for, uh, but we need to be clear about their limits. So when you talk about eco-socialism or the society that we should be fighting for as our ultimate goal, what do you mean by that? What's the content of, of eco-socialism as an alternative to capitalism? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I would look back to uh, traditions of socialism that, uh, are first of all, first of all, um, analyze capitalism as a, as a system that has to be overcome and overthrown. It's a system that is driving uh, the world to disaster in terms both of poverty and economic polarization and in terms of ecological destruction. I mean, you at the at the top of the program, at the top of the podcast, you were talking about the projections of, you know, temperature rise of 2.1 to 3.9 above the pre-industrial average by the end of century. But there are there are projections out there that suge suggest it could be much worse than that, four degrees even, even higher than that. And there's a recent study by scientists at Caltech that predict that with four degrees heating, you could that could trigger a further eight degrees due to a cascade of tipping points. So we're looking at uh, we're looking at a, a system, capitalism that is driving the planet and everyone on it to. Uh, disaster and it has to be overcome. It has to be overthrown. It can't simply be uh, uh, reformed and um, central to that overcoming, I think, is the process of class struggle, which is ultimately about care, care for one another as human beings, but uh, which is predicated on care for the planet. So um, 
So the socialism that I would look to is one that is centrally geared to social movements, to class struggle, understood as um, movements that build solidarity, uh, develop ideas for alternatives. And in the course of building those relations of solidarity, we're, we're extending the, the compass of our care, so to speak. That's it seems critical at the moment that that that, that social movements are re revive and as they revive and interconnect, um, they develop anti-systemic potential and extend that compass of consideration and care uh, to the future, to future generations and to human beings all over the world and to the planet itself. I mean, the, the, the conjuncture we're in at the moment is one in which there's such dreadful alienation from one another, which is bred in human beings across the planet, kind of, kind of terrible indifference to our collective fate, uh, a sort of uh, bleak loneliness and uh, in the absence of social movements that can point to a way forward. And that way forward uh, in terms of social system, I, I think would have to be one based on democratic planning. The so-called socialist societies for me had nothing whatsoever to do with socialism. Uh, they were state capitalist societies. Uh, the, the planning that was involved there um, in the Soviet Union and in China today had had uh, had nothing to do with human need and the care for one another and for the planet. It was purely about capital accumulation. So so that's the sort of socialist uh, project that I, I would seek to um, further. I really like I really like the way Garrett uh, talked about uh, extending the compass of consideration and care. I think this is a great goal for us to have because it's not just about uh, thinking of like this nucleus of a human society that we have today, it has to do with this intergenerational solidarity. And by being intergenerational solidarity, it's not, for example, sacrificing uh, some today for the, the needs of those in the future, which there are people in the technological world who have that kind of perspective, um, like Silicon Valley moguls and people like that. But inter intergenerational solidarity is really about connecting these needs and building conditions today that will help to expand liberty today, that will ensure that people actually achieve what we would think of as a good life today, but ensuring that the material conditions for that good life remain for the future or can be even improved upon in the future. So this idea about like the material conditions is really important here because in eco-socialism, it's not just about uh, these changes that we want to make in terms of the rearrangement around labor, but also understanding that there is a physical capacity on Earth that has to be taken into account whenever we're dealing with production, but also our own dreams, right? So it's very easy to envision a society um, that looks like a science fiction kind of world. <laughs> uh, it's sometimes even... Um, even of an like interesting exercise as well in terms of imagination, but we have to be aware of the physical limitations that we're dealing with. Uh, we have to be aware that technological improvement may help us here and there, but it's not going to uh, change the laws of physics out of nowhere. It's not going to lead us into a situation where you can simply uh, build whatever you want and not think about the consequences of it, especially if we're considering um, the differences in terms of the development of, of standards of living in the global south and the global north, and also the people who live in the margins in the global south, right? So uh, people who live in, um, in sacrifice zones in both places, because those are present 
throughout the world. We, if we consider, for example, mining as a, a type of activity that generates sacrifice zones, we need to understand that, yes, we need to raise the standard of living of these people, but we can't do that promising everyone a bunch of flying cars, flying electric cars and infinity poles, as I read in other places, right? So bringing these things into consideration is a huge part of eco-socialism because it means that we also are positing other values, other ways of considering what a good life is. And sometimes that even means looking to uh, cultures and teachings that have been uh, ignored, suppressed, or suffered because of colonialism for a really long time. All right. Well, thank you. Um, I think to shift a little bit to um, the fact that this is a an eco-socialist horizon that we've been talking about, um, but unfortunately, a social revolution that could break with capitalism and actually open a transition towards it is unlikely for quite some time. It's not an immediate prospect anywhere at the moment. And so in the here and now, we're thinking about uh, resistance and fighting for reforms in capitalist societies in ways that build counterpower from below and, and socialist political forces. Uh, as Rosa Luxemburg put it, the goal is social revolution. Class struggle for reforms is the means to that end. But there is disagreement among eco-socialists and other supporters of climate justice about what kinds of climate justice reforms we should be pushing for. To maybe pose it starkly, um, you can think of two positions, one which argues for a rapid transition to renewable energy, phasing out fossil fuels and other sources of greenhouse gas emissions, and importantly, significantly reducing energy demand in the advanced capitalist countries, which would mean all sorts of important changes in how most people in places like the Canadian state and the US live. Uh, all this with the, the goal of assisting people in imperialized countries, so-called global south, uh, to be able to use more energy to improve living standards during their transitions away from fossil fuels. And on the other hand, you have a a camp that argues for, yes, a rapid transition to renewable energy, and yes, slashing greenhouse gas emissions, but which doesn't raise the question of lowering energy demand in the imperialist countries. And I think this disagreement is associated with different stances to degrowth politics and also to nuclear power. So to start off on this, you know, I pose this as a stark you know, choice between two approaches. Um, which of those two approaches would you say you support and why in terms of this debate among climate justice supporters? Okay, I'll, I'll kick off here. Um, so the forces of revolutionary socialism are incredibly tiny in the world today and haven't really carved out a, a, a specific program of eco-socialism um, that has uh, caught on amongst wider masses. On the left, um, for me, the, the two most interesting um, programs are those that you've just named, um, the, the degrowth camp and the 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 those calling for a kind of radical Green New Deal. Um, I'm thinking of people like uh, Kate Aronoff and Rio, uh, Thea Rio Francos and Naomi Klein and 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 others. The degrowthers are uh, individuals like uh, Jason Hickel and um, Yorios Kalis and uh, and so on. And broadly speaking, the degrowthers are uh, advocating a kind of utopian socialism slash anarchism, uh, a revolution of consciousness. A grassroots revolution that 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 um, begins to affect a kind of anti-capitalist transition through um, building um, uh, al al alternative communities, um, non-capitalist communities in 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 your locality. The Green New Deal camp is more focused on um, bringing about a, a state state engineered uh, green. Uh, 
transformation of, of 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 national economies and ultimately of the global economy. And um, I, I mean, at face value, you can see these two camps as as antithetical. Um, but in the article that you mentioned at the top of the program, at the top of the podcast, um, I argue that each of these camps covers a very very broad terrain. Um, and on the far left of each of them, I think they have a great deal in common. And I think it's on the left uh, that you find a kind of anti-capitalist node among the Green New Dealers and among the degrowthers. Um, and, and in terms of practical politics, there's a great deal that they can, they they can and must unite around um, uh, support for. Um, home insulation programs, which on the one hand is an investment program that, s- that states need to back, which would create many jobs, um, reduce inequality, all the gr- ticking all the Green New Deal boxes, but uh, also it's it's reducing um, consumption of fossil fossil gas, fossil fuels, um, which is the overriding concern of de- degrowthers, reducing the cons- reducing the the material footprint of. Uh, of uh, capitalist society on 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 this planet. Um, so there's so this is what I would argue in 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 respect of those two broad camps that they that 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 left should aspire to um, hegemony within within them and and creating a sort of uh, coalescence of them at the anti capitalist corner. I would say here. Um trying to complement this conversation that the Green New Deal or whatever name it takes, depending on the place, <laughs> um, because it, it really depends on, on historical context, the political um, makeup of a movement. But let's say the Green New Deal is here a particular project that involves certain investments, it invo- involves certain guarantees, certain rights, and a general orientation towards transition, primarily energy transition, which has been one of the major focus. And in the sense of either in terms of energy infrastructure or looking, for example, into um, energy efficiency, as was the example around insulation that um, Gareth just gave us. The GND here is a particular instrument that we have. Degrowth is more of an orientation. So you can have a GND that's uh, more oriented towards green capitalism. That it's about just pumping money into these like private companies around solar and wind and things like that. Or it could be a GND that uses the state machine um, in order to strengthen communities that have been um, left aside for a really long time or promoting a little bit of energy democracy, uh, bringing urban reform into the conversation. So the orientation matters here in terms of who's going to be promoting the GND. So I would say that, yes, they're not um, completely separate camps. And there are people doing work trying to talk and promote some some sort of dialogue around this. So the growth as an orientation around the GND would come along in terms of understanding that you might have like a combination around growth and degrowth depending on the sectors here, but how is this connecting to this larger uh, this larger objective that Gareth mentioned that is the you know reducing this material footprint. So this means a game of give and take and this conversation around the the reforms is very good here. And like you mentioned, uh, David, you mentioned Rosa Luxemburg, and we could bring in under courts as well, talking about non-reformist reforms and this capacity uh, in terms of um, reforms that will give us enough of a structural shake 
that can help us with movement building because it can help to address the needs of the working class right now, but also in terms of raising class consciousness that we need to organize if we want to change things and if we want to achieve certain goals. But it also means that they are only going to be non-reformists in the sense that we make sure they are non-reformists, that we don't stop there, that we keep uh, building the movement towards something bigger, understanding that we won't be able to overcome cap uh, capitalism through capitalist means. We can only go so far. But with the ecological crisis and uh, a little bit closer to us talking particularly about the climate crisis that we already seeing very uh, hardcore impacts of the climate crisis right now, it means that we have issues around time here, right? So it would be great if we could just change everything right now this year, you know, 2022, and then we could fix the crisis a lot quicker if we have eco-socialism. But to have eco-socialism, we need to build the conditions for it. So what we're trying to do here is work on this combination of approaches that will help us buy time uh, in terms of building more revolutionary prospects that can go at the core, like at the pillars of capitalism, and at the same time, uh, improve people's lives and um, reduce this material footprint, you know, get us some ecological gain as well. So it is um, a combination of approaches. So we would have, for example, the GND here as an instrument, the growth can be a part of the orientation. And I would say there are other orientations here. So if we talk about when we read and that these concepts around the good life, this is an orientation that I say could be combined with the growth. There are a lot of Latin American uh, scholars and movement leaders that have been talking, for example, how can we uh, get degrowth, post-extractivism, and when we veer into a conversation here, like where can we actually tamper each other and uh, create a more holistic approach and eco-socialism here, of course, as a horizon. So we don't fall into traps of green capitalism or uh, traps uh, around, you know, believing that if we just uh, improve uh, energy technology, this is going to be enough. So it is, it, this requires us to be very alert about what we do uh, so we don't uh, end up just giving in to these projects that are good in the sense that they're very palpable, like you can sense them. Uh, the good thing that I, I find about the, the Green New Deal is that this is something that you can show people, right? You can show that, oh, this is being done. And when you show people that things are being done, you're actually making a counterpoint to the fact that capitalism is doing things all the time. And usually people think that only capitalism is doing things. So we, we can use these instruments in our favor, but we have to be quite alert that in terms of the hegemonic stance, we are a minority, well, like Gareth said, right? So the tendency is that once these conversations are out there and these instruments become more mainstream, that green capitalists will take over the process. And this is very much part of the problem we're facing today because I thoroughly believe that uh, even though part of, of our job is to fight climate denialism, for example, Trump-style climate denialism, um, are, we're actually fighting a different battle right now, which is that, you know, most, most people recognize there is a climate crisis. Uh, the big capitalists know there, there is a climate crisis, but they want to do it their way. And we need to ensure that we divert all of our energy, um, both political energy and material energy, in a way that's going to be oriented towards equal socialism so we can actually address the crisis once and for all um, in our horizon.
Now, most of the people listening to this podcast uh, will be in Canada or the the U.S., and um, so people are probably you know they're more familiar with the idea of a green new deal than they are with degrowth as as a whole. So before we talk a little bit about eco socialism and degrowth, would one of you like to say anything more to explain to listeners about degrowth as a current? And Gareth talked about it a little bit, um, but because I think it often gets misrepresented uh, by socialists and other people on the left writing about degrowth. Um, Maybe Sabrina, would you like to just say a little bit more about just helping people understand degrowth as a political current? The the interesting thing about degrowth is that I do think there is a lot of disagreement within the degrowth camp uh, that that usually doesn't get addressed by the critics, right? So people would come and they would uh, critique degrowth as one particular stance, but we have held debates within the eco-socialist camp talking about degrowth, and I've heard a series perspective. So there are people who are very concerned uh, with the word. There are people who are very concerned with the notion of economic growth itself and others who are more focused on material growth and different notions around abundance. So it's very plural. And I think this is a positive thing because when these debates are plural, it means that we have a lot of room to work through them. And something that I um, I have come across both in my work and my political activism is that um, in the global south, this is also a matter of concern because the, the growth conversations in the way that they put out today, they began more in the global north. Uh, sometimes there, there is a whole strain that's a lot more academic than connected to movements. But this is something that the degrowth camp is quite aware of. So a lot of the criticisms that are valid usually make their way into the camp. And there's an effort to our synthesis. So this article that they mentioned earlier that was uh, co-authored uh, like with, with three other incredible uh, militants and scholars uh, is based on this idea that if we're going to be talking about when equal socialist degrowth, what are the principles here? You know, what are the matters in terms of giving and taking? And I think well, like the, the biggest thing that uh, we usually end up having to address because of the mischaracterizations, the misrepresentation of the growth that is out there is that this idea that the growth is about austerity and it is not about austerity. Uh, the capitalist camp is about austerity. It's austerity. It is about actually um, reducing not only the role of the state, but the role of the economy in um, tending to people's needs and tending also to people's wants. And I believe that uh, the degrowth camp when it's more oriented um, in a sense around the like the eco-socialist discussions and the discussions around the good life and the way we've been handling this in Latin America um, is actually about enriching people's lives. So making sure that people have the basic needs and this, um, this involves infrastructure and this involves rearranging of societies. So for example, cities are built in a different way than they're built today because today they're built in a way that's not efficient and they're built in a way uh, that actually makes makes people waste a lot of time and waste a lot of like their own um, personal energy going about their lives. And this opens up room for us to discuss abundance in a different way. So I would say that degrowth in a way requires us to think about these material limits that are very real that we have to uh, deal with 
because capitalism ignores them every day. And this is part of the problem we're facing today. But also, on the other hand, it's a way for us to reconceptualize what we mean about abundance, what we mean about a good life. But I think there's still a lot of room for us to work in terms of bringing other conversations, other perspectives. So um, this becomes more, um, this may, so that this makes more sense to people in the left, both the people who are very knowledgeable about socialism already, but also people who are you know, part of the working class. And ultimately what they want is to live well, but what it means today in the socialist camp shouldn't be just about copying the capitalist version of living well and you know putting renewables on it. It means that we need to acknowledge the periphery of the system. We need to acknowledge matters around just transition, solidarity, like Gareth mentioned earlier on. And this will ultimately deal with redistribution, both at the source when we're, you know, when we're dealing with um, transforming nature into particular resources, but also how we do with this, you know, what do we create more time by reducing the work week as well? And then what do we do with this time? What are, no, what, how can we invest more in culture and sports and leisure and all of these other things that are robbed from us all the time by the capitalist system that could be, you know, a source of different types of growth that are also low carbon and put uh, less pressure on, on earth. I was supposed to summarize it. I went there for a really long time, but I hope you get the gist. Yeah, I'd, I'd just chip, uh, jump in there and just add to this. I mean, I completely agree with the way Sabrina has um, summarized degrowth. Um, it's Degrowth is, is, a, is a movement um, initially based around intellectuals, so quite an academic movement at first, but it's it's broadened out and it relates, I think increasingly it's relating to a broader mood, gathering together all these different skeins of growth skepticism that have existed for many decades, both from environmentalists and um, socialists, and broader, more broadly, people who look at um, the mantra of economic growth and ask themselves, you know, are, are we working people really benefiting from this growth? Who is benefiting? There are all sorts of critiques of, of, of the economic growth paradigm that uh, the degrowth movement is, is relating to and kind of coalescing together under this uh, label of degrowth. And I think um, you're right, um, uh, David, to say that it's um, it's more of a movement in Europe than in North America, but that broader um, reaction against the failure of uh, economic growth to really improve lives, um, I think, is is quite um, widespread in North America as well. And so, um, yeah, there's a broader mood around growth skepticism that that, that w- with degrowth as a kind of political intellectual pull within that uh within that terrain and uh sabrina mentioned kohei saito's book um uh, i'd uh, saito is one of the marxists who's developing interesting ideas on degrowth degrowth essentially has a class struggle angle which um the marxists involved with it with the degrowth movement are obviously um uh foregrounding um because who is uh who is benefiting from growth? It's the rich who is who is overwhelmingly using the world's uh, ab- abusing the world's resources and creating the climate uh, emergency and all sorts of other 
uh, forms of environmental despoliation, it's the rich. Um, and so uh, a consequent, a consequential Marxist reading of degrowth would be to read it as a class struggle movement. But then we need to get on to the question of wants and needs, which Sabrina has been talking about. Um, and David, I think you mentioned in one of your questions. And, and degrowth, um, exactly as Sabrina says, is, is, a, is a movement that is not about austerity. It's about trying to, cre it's creating the conditions for a good life for everyone. Um, uh, but it, I, what I, what I value in, in the work of the degrowthers as well is that they bring to discussion of environment and human wants and needs a very sober realism, which is tends to be lacking elsewhere. Um, that is to say, they look at, you know, what, uh, if we keep on uh, expanding our resource use and energy use at, at this rate, what is going to happen? Uh, in general discourse on these questions, um, this tends to be ignored. This assumption just is we can keep on creating more and more energy uh, without uh, suffering the consequences. The degrowthers uh, are not the utopians on this count. They are the realists. It's the green growthers who are the utopians uh, who imagine that uh, capitalism can just continue uh, growing and continue producing more and more and more. Um, and there'll be a sort of law of um, efficiency and, 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 and a decoupling process whereby we can all become richer and richer and richer and our wants can expand and expand and expand in the Promethean style um, without uh, suffering the consequences. And the degrowthers, I think, bring a really, really useful um, correction and, and, and realist understanding of those questions. Yeah, we could say it's taking the planetary boundaries concept seriously, right? Taking ecological limits seriously uh, in a very materialist way. But in a sense, there's even more than that, because usually degrowthers are accused of, you know, not taking technology seriously or like being unscientific in terms of technological development. But one of the things that I find actually refreshing is that it's about dealing with the technology that we have available today, rather than blowing up out of proportion the possible impacts of technology that might be developed in the future, or there's currently under development, but it hasn't been properly tested yet, or may have very um, complicated consequences, both in terms of like an ethical standpoint um, or in the sense of may just actually create a butterfly effect that might make things worse in other areas, right? So this type of techno fixes is something that we have to be quite aware of in the sense of, you know, what is the, what, what is the, uh, process behind creating the technology, who's behind that, what can you do with that, and how much of it can be applied in a large scale without making things go absolutely haywire. And this is different from being anti-technology. So usually I've seen many times the growthers and even eco-socialists get accused of being, uh, you know, Luddites because, oh, you guys just hate technology so much and you're writing this on your phone, aren't you? So what a hypocrite. And it's absolutely bizarre to hear an argument like that coming from a Marxist <laughs> using that kind of straw man argument that, you know, um, in a very low level capitalists use when they're talking about socialists being hypocrites and living under capitalism or something like that. Um, the matter of fact is that it, this is not about being pro or anti-technology, it's about considering good technology that can be um, 
properly applied that helps with efficiency, that does help to reduce our material footprint, that can be inserted in a system that's under democratic control, you know, that really um, helps people's lives. And I would say that like a perfect example we find uh, when we're talking about transportation, right? So um, I'm, I think electric, the, the, the technology behind electric vehicles is quite important. And I want to have that use towards public transportation, uh, expanding uh, access to public transportation, having more, more uh, bus, uh, bus routes. I want to have, you know, an expanded uh, rail system, but I also want to make sure that when I expand my rail system, I'm considering local communities and what the impact of, you know, a high-speed train uh, has in their communities in terms of safety, in terms of noise pollution and, and the biodiversity in the area. So how can I create tunnels that won't also create other types of, of you know, uh, negative impacts like the sinkhole due to the, the structural uh, impacts of, of, the, of the construction. So it means that when we're dealing with technology, and I'm here in my we, I'm considering the growthers and eco-socialists uh, in their approach to this, is that we're understanding life as a complex system and understanding nature as a very, very complex system that sometimes when you're trying to fix one thing, you might break something else. And we have the capacity, uh, the scientific capacity to foresee this. You know, we might break this other thing. So how about we, we do this in a different way? Uh, what can we allocate differently here? So maybe if we actually reduce a little bit of demand in this one area and create possibilities of a good life uh, that will still make people happy without, you know, even though they might not have access to all of these cars anymore, you know, then I may not have to, you know, go about a way that's going to disrupt this biome here in this area or, you know, take away the water resources in a desert area in Chile um, because I need more and more lithium, right? So uh, in, what we're talking about when we're talking about technology is a very scientific approach that considers supply chains. And I think Theo Rufrancos has done a great job. She, uh, she was already mentioned, but like uh, her job uh, talking about like, the global supply chains around lithium, I think it's quite excellent. And there's many other people doing great work on this. And this is a good thing. It's a good thing that we're aware of our impacts and that when we want to produce, we want to produce taking that into account because our problem is not just carbon. Our problem is, is not just greenhouse gases. Uh, we're, uh, the climate crisis is one part of a larger uh, ecological crisis and we need to take all of that into account in the system of inequalities that we're already living in. Yeah, the point you were making just now, Sabrina, about um, just a, uh, 20 seconds ago about technology, um, calls to mind for me as well the the argument that um is is made by someone like um Julian Allwood now i find he, he's right he's a cambridge university engineer he is not an anarchist he is not a socialist he's not a degrowther but he is a scientist and he's and the, there's something in the basic arithmetic of um economics and ecology that is pushing people who are alert to what's going on towards um, some of the arguments that, uh, well, that Sabrina was making just now about, about technology. So this, this guy, he's an engineer and he's not a degrowther, but he, he is very critical of the 
arguments um, that breakthrough technologies, as he, as he refers to them, need to be relied on to get us out of this mess. This 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 sort of te te technology fetishism that um, that hopes and prays for the boffins in white coats to come and save us. It's almost a religious, um, a strange pseudo-scientific religious belief. They will save us with their amazing new technologies. Um, uh, but he points out, uh, Allwood and his group, it's called FIRES, F-I-R-E-S, their research group at Cambridge, they point out that, you know, uh, scaling up technologies takes decades and we need to radically reduce uh, carbon and uh, carbon dioxide and methane emissions um, within the next 10, 20 years. And um, they've, uh, in their group, they've developed this program based on the legislation in Britain um, that holds that Britain Britain must reach so-called net zero by 2050. And they've done the sums and worked out, you know, if Britain is going to do that, then by 2030, all airports, apart from Heathrow and Glasgow, need to be shut down. And all airports in Britain need to be shut down by 2050. But here's the thing. He's not a degrowther. He, he envisages um, sometime after that, perhaps there'll be uh, genuinely sustainable aviation uh, coming on stream, and maybe the airports could be reopened after that. He's, he's not philosophically a degrowther in any sense at all. But he recognizes that if um, that, that the scale and intensity of the crisis that we face environmentally requires, uh, in the certainly in the short term, in the next uh, couple of decades, um, a massive uh, reduction in energy use, and that will require some pretty tricky uh, uh, choices, including for the needs and wants of working people. I mean, certainly the rich need to be uh, cut down to the average. Um, consumption, uh, and that will save an awful lot of emissions from being pumped up into the atmosphere. But, you know, working people, who if they if they are uh, addicted to eating beef and driving SUVs and flying all over the place, well, you know, you seriously, if you have to ask, you know, is the planet going to remain a habitable place or is your lifestyle going to have to change? Can I, can I just interject here? Yeah. This is a point around political education. And I think it's something that's usually missed out of the conversation, right? Like people are like, oh no, the working class has this one perspective, what, you know, how they want to live. They've learned that if you have a lot of low-cost airlines, you can go everywhere and you could post that on Instagram. How dare us take that away from them? We can't do that. We're not going to be able to include the working class in the climate movement if you tell them they can't take low-cost air airlines and, you know, fly everywhere all the time. I I find that to be an approach that's absolutely counterproductive. Uh, first of all, because it doesn't consider that the majority of the working class is not taking low-cost airlines all the time, right? Uh, we're talking about, you know, uh, um, every now and then, obviously, low-cost airlines made planes more accessible to people with low incomes, but this is not what's happening all the time. Um, tourism is a political construction. The way that it's built today is part of this political construction. Migration is a matter that concerns us very much. Like I'm a migrant myself, so obviously I would like to keep traveling. But the amount of travel I do also needs to um, come into consideration around socially necessary travel. Travel and socially necessary travel is not just me going to visit my parents. It should include tourism and leisure as well. But this should be part of a conversation 
around our modes of transportation, around how we're investing in certain technologies. So like if we're going to be talking about liquid to fuel technology um, for, you know, airplanes to be able to fly uh, in other places, well, there's no point in just talking about liquid to fuel if we're not considering the global supply chain around um, these technologies, well, what it means in terms of the resources being employed and what are the other alternatives as well. And, you know, sometimes it might take longer for you to get somewhere, but you still, you still get there. But how can you tell people that they're going to have to take longer when capitalism promises everything so much faster? Well, we need to slow down the pace of life. And maybe if we reduce the work week, we have more of an opportunity to slow down the pace of life. So we need to consider that this is not about taking one action. We're go we have to coordinate. We need to take a lot of different actions at the same time and see how they complement each other, how they help to solve some of these contradictions. And sometimes when we're talking about tech, we're talking about old tech. I know it's not cool. It's not, you know, it's not shiny. Uh, it's not... Um, you know, modern enough for a lot of people. But when I think uh, Gareth mentioned meat, and I think that has been um, part of some of the recent control controversies um, in the field, but a lot of people are more willing to consider lab meat, something that's super expensive today, that is still um, uh, is energy intensive, because the production of lab meat is still going to be energy intensive. So, oh, yes, we're not talking about methane anymore, but it's still energy intensive. Um, if from the standpoint of animal liberation, uh, it still involves a certain level of animal exploitation. And it's not bold enough if we're talking about food sovereignty, because if we were actually working from a paradigm of food sovereignty, we'll be, we could be considering, you know, biodiversity through agroecological techniques that have been taught for a really long time and excluded from our mainstream way of looking to agriculture because we have even, it's so terrible to think this, but even the socialist camp have, has been absolutely colonized by the green revolution way of thinking about agriculture. So the way that, you know, Bill Gates does things, the way Monsanto does things, the way Agra does things, a lot of people in the socialist camp still think that, well, that's the only way for us to have a farm. That's the only way for us to, you know, grow grains and, and raise livestock and other things like that. And we absolutely need to get out of that mindset and think of how we can actually, um, you know, promote agroecological systems that will be solar powered, but they need to be solar powered in a way that's decentralized, in a way that helps, um, you know, small cooperatives to coordinate uh, along with democratic planning, the level of stocks for certain grains, because that's going to help to regulate uh, the prices for food as well. So like, you, you, so you can have those regulating stocks in place and at the same time grow other things that we don't get to grow because they're not seen as commercially viable for the big supermarket chains. So if we think from a, a standpoint of food sovereignty and see democracy, for me, that's the, the best technology that we can have in terms of our techniques and integration with, you know, the shiny tech uh, rather than thinking of lab meat. And I think that makes even a, a more viable, creates a more viable uh, path for those working with animal libera liberation and veganism to make sense to people because it won't be just, oh, you're reducing your meat intake. No, we're actually bringing a lot more other types of food into your plate and you're eating better and things like that. It's a more productive standpoint here. Can I just uh, respond to something, um, a couple of things that um, Sabrina has been 
saying just now. I mean, the first the first one is uh, when when you were talking, Sabrina, about um, uh, you know some uh, about aviation having to be rationed um, or even in some senses banned, reduced, uh, curtailed. Um, you 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 mentioned, I think, um, the need to join that the issues need to be joined together, and this is exactly where um, uh, socialist arguments come 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 to the fore, come into their own. Because rather than simply saying to people, you know, you you we the future we're arguing for is one in which you cannot fly or can only fly once a year, instead of leaving it at that, you're saying no, we we are arguing for you know high speed rail to be to be developed from from you know where i live in london down to um uh spain so you know you can get overnight trains um cruising just at 120 miles an hour you can get an overnight train and be be somewhere very sunny and by the beach um uh, in time for breakfast you know you you can put concrete proposals and more more importantly and in a more revolutionary sense you 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 link it to arguments um, around who controls work time. Um, Sabrina mentioned the intense pace of capitalist um, accumulation, and um, and it's a pace that imposes itself, um, hammers itself into our lives at at uh, you know every minute of the day, and uh, we need to smash that control of our time by by a capitalist metronome and um, argue for its replacement with a with a much much more fluid and uh, relaxed um, form of uh, living which would enable us to instead of having to feeling that we have to get a holiday and jump on a flight and have a few days somewhere nice and warm and jump back uh, on onto the plane to get home in time to, to clock on at work again we could you know take a boat somewhere for a couple of couple of a couple of weeks and spend a couple of months somewhere and then return you know a, a more leisurely pace is part of the argument that that we i think that conjoins um socialist call for workers power with an uh environmental um uh, you know, logic on lab meat um i'm a bit of an ag- agnostic i have to admit on lab meat i'm i'm, I'm not sure um i certainly take sabrina's point that it's uh, at the moment seems to be very energy intensive in its production but i i do um i am persuaded by those who argue that um close shortly after fossil fuels the greatest ecological crime that we have been committing is uh, t- towards our grandchildren and great grandchildren is the is meat consumption because um what is it something like half of the world is uh, half of the land in the world is is devoted, or eighty four percent of agricultural land is devoted to pr- livestock production, from which we get what fifteen percent of our protein or something derisory. It's incredibly inefficient. I'm not sure how um, how capitalists how, whether whether capitalism is dependent on on um, uh, meat uh, the meat uh, industry. I mean, there's debate. There's been a lot of debate on whether capitalism is dependent on fossil fuels, and you can argue, you know, it's not really because capitalism began to rise before um, fossil fuels were being used in a big way. But then industrial capitalism really only d- depended on the highly concentrated and continually usable um, forms of energy that fossil fuels enabled for its great expansion in the 19th century and its globalization and so on. But what about? Um, 
cattle agriculture? Is that something completely necessary to capitalism? I mean, the word capital, of course, comes from cattle, so they're joined at the hip et etymologically, but I'm not sure whether they are, um, uh, whether the capitalist system relies on that. And so, um, I mean, I, uh, and so, the whole argument for lab meat, I think, is one that I, 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 I'm, I'm agnostic on. George Monbiot, in his new book, uh, Regenesis, um, he develops quite an interesting thesis on technology. He argues that just as um, the pill was a new technology which synergized with the women's movement, uh, with feminist movements in the in the 60s and 70s to begin to completely transform uh, the lives of women um, and the way women are perceived in a sexist society and so on. Um, so too, the technology of lab meat, he thinks, could catalyze a worldwide anti-meat movement where people look aghast at the way in which um, uh, we have that the world has been parceled up among the the cattle ranchers um, to the detriment of uh, of of, uh, of wildlife, which have been completely pushed aside to the margins and to, the, to, to and with enormous uh, methane release and uh, etc. Um, which is an interesting little thesis, I think. The thing is that I don't think we actually need lab meat to bring that level of consciousness for people to be really shocked about what happens in, in terms of animal exploitation at those levels. And what's, what's interesting is that a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, plant-based alternatives to meat that taste like meat and people have been, you know, the ultra-processed kind, they will get into other problems around that in terms of being ultra-processed. They are very much based on, on peas and soy and, and chickpeas and other uh, levels of vegetable protein. But to um, answer to that point on the um, on capitalism and the level of production, like, for example, if everyone stopped eating meat today, Brazilian economy would collapse. And the Brazilian economy would, would collapse, not just because Brazil exports a lot of meat, but because Brazil exports a lot of commodities tied to um, um, industrial livestock uh, in other parts of the world. So, for example, the majority of the soy that Brazil uh, exports is towards uh, raising livestock, China, in other yeah. parts of the world, right? So this is something that absolutely needs to be addressed. And uh, I would say that if we put this just in the sense of, you know, the way that meat is cons uh, consumed today and produced today and let meat on the other side, maybe we're missing a beautiful variety of things, the line between when we're talking about agroecology and plant-based alternatives that actually, you know, connect us more to the land, that put other things in our plate. And I think this is one of the things that get into that conversation around values and good life and what's growing and what's degrowing. But anyway, we don't want to like completely hijack the conversation on this as well, David. <laughs> no, this is this is great. I think that you both raised some really important questions. Um, that eco-socialists and other people who are seriously grappling with these things need to be thinking about. But I do want to uh, maybe take a few minutes to talk about people on the left who disagree with the line of discussion that we've been pursuing, um, because there certainly are, you know, articulate um, people who are part of, in, in the U.S. DSA, for example, um, who would, would disagree with a lot of it. Um, not long ago, a Canadian Union researcher named Adam King wrote an article in the publication Passage, um, against degrowth. And he's referring in that article to Matt Huber, who's a U.S. socialist, who's recently published a book called Climate Change as Class War. He's 
you know, picking up on Huber's point that uh, a class-based strategy that raises the material well-being of the working class is needed to win a just transition in the first place. With this argument that in order to win support in the working class, the key is to raise the material well-being of the working class. And then going on from that to disparage degrowth and saying that, you know, that means trying to convince workers in the West that they have to undergo extreme austerity and immiseration. That means, you know, you can't win working class support. Um, you know, you've already referred to the fact that it's kind of a straw dog argument because people, eco-socialist degrowth supporters are not talking about extreme austerity. Uh, but could you maybe just focus in on, on this kind of uh, argument that you get from some people who would identify as eco-socialists, right? Um, but who would argue that, um, you know, the solution would include not only a rejection of anything that smacks of degrowth, but uh, much more of an emphasis on technology, nuclear power, for example, um, as part of the, the transformative vision that they would be uh, arguing for as an alternative to ecological crisis. There is one thing that, that Matt says, Matt Huber says, that I agree with him in terms of, of his reading of the environmental movement in North America in particular, there, there is a distance. There is a distance between, you know, uh, more professional environmentalists or, and like some NGOs and the academics who work on this and part of the industrial working class. That is a matter that has to be addressed. Um, it requires uh, more hands-on efforts in terms of not just, you know, just saying that we're going to transition your jobs. Don't worry, we're going to transition your jobs. But understanding the peculiarities involved into this and, um, you know, how the unions work and in the sense that um, people sometimes may be even like emotionally attached to the jobs that they do today and they may be afraid of change. And I think this is absolutely normal. Uh, for people to be afraid of change. But I think this is where political education should be playing a big role, right? So when we have unions in other parts of the world and we, we have them uh, both in the global north and in the global south doing work saying that we're going to transition your jobs, let's talk about what that means. Let's talk about the realities and how can we make this other job better? Um, a few months ago, I think it was back in June, I was in a debate in Germany, in Berlin, um, on transition and what in Germany they've been calling the Green New Deal something like social, social ecological transformation. And it was a debate on that. And there were in the audience uh, workers from the audio and uh, from the auto and um, and the metal unions. In fact, in later we started like having a conversation about like the metal workers union in Brazil that's very traditional and connected to other parts of the world. But I ended up saying something that I thought, well, they might take this very harshly, but I think I'm going to say it anyway, which was the fact that many times the left is telling these people that they're going to transition their jobs when they're actually talking about conversion and conversion is not going to be enough. So this idea that you're a worker in the auto industry, we're just going to you know convert your job to a job in the auto, in the auto industry, but now it's going to be green. <laughs> now it's going to be around renewables and electric cars and things like that. So don't worry, it's not going to be that hard. We're going to convert your jobs. When in fact, the conversation around transition involves even abolishing some jobs, right? So there are areas where we're going to be reducing it so much, but we need to be doing this in a way where these jobs become obsolete. So it's not a matter of like, let's fire these people and closing down these industries. No, let's 
change the structure. The uh, infrastructure is a better name here. Let's change the infrastructure uh, around job creation here with other industries, with other needs, so that those other jobs, they don't make any sense anymore. I want a job in the coal mining industry to become obsolete because we don't need coal anymore because we have advanced enough in our energy transition uh, that these jobs won't make sense. So yes, those people, unfortunately, even if some of them might be attached, I have a hard time believing this is the rule, um, working with you know mining communities in the global south, we know how people are usually attached to their jobs because this is how they make a living and because their local communities uh, if you take away, you know, if you close down that mine, the community is going to lose most of their eco economic um, infrastructure, right? So they're attached in that sense. But most people are not attached, you know, like to, you know, going down into the earth, you know, for a real long time and, you know, not seeing the light of day. So we can work in terms of political education to make sure that these new jobs are also better jobs, that they are desirable, and that life is not just about working anymore. So I think this is one of the beauties of like bringing the degrowth into the conversation, that we understand that most of the time we've been talking about transition as a way of like moving from like an alienating job to another alienating job, but now it's a green alienating job. We don't want these alienating jobs anymore. We want the jobs to make sense, for people to be proud of what they're doing. And sometimes that, that involves you know, many different things. So like recently I've been reading things about um, wind uh, power plants in Spain and in terms of dealing with the biodiversity, um, the biodiversity in the area, because we, we know that wind turbines may pose a risk to, uh, you know, certain bird, birds and wildlife in the area. You actually have like bird watchers employed uh, so they can, you know, take notes of when birds are going through the area so they can they, they, con they can contact um, the unit that's responsible for those turbines so they can stop those turbines for like so many hours to let, you know, uh, those birds go through and then they start again. So, look, I have never heard of that before. And I've been, you know, dealing with wind power for a really long time because sometimes there are different things that are marginal and we don't pay attention to them because we're just focused on the traditional jobs. Um, so I, I, I do think like um, Matt has a point in terms of, like, uh, you know, making sure that we understand that like the class war is against the capitalists, it's not between workers, but I also don't think it's in our detriment to make sure that workers understand that there are other workers in other parts of the world who are going through a really hard time and their jobs are even more precarious than yours. So making these adjustments around production and consumption in all other parts is going to be good for other people too. So sometimes a little bit of a loss here is not about immiseration and extreme austerity. Is it about an adjustment and class solidarity? internationalist class solidarity. And I think this is something that should actually be helping us organize and get people excited about, you know, I'm not a worker just in my city, in my country, I'm part of a community. And isn't this one of the core principles of Marxism? If I could just bounce off a few points that um, uh, Sabrina has just made. The first one is really an, uh, an incidental point, an aside, which is it's nice to hear a Marxist um, defending the interests of the bird life of, of, of um, Spain in the face of wind turbines. I've just been reading um, uh, this wonderful book by um, uh, Troy Vitizzi uh, and someone, Prendergast, um, 
Sorry. Half for socialism, right? That's right. Half for yeah, socialism, yeah. and it's generally an absolutely wonderful book. But there's this little section where he they have a pop at Marxists, um, a dig at Marxists for being anti-bird, with the noble the noble exception of Rosa Luxemburg. Um, but on on another book, which is a, w- a wonderful read, um, on wind turbines in Spain is David Hughes' book. Um, it's just a gorgeous book and it's gorgeous partly because he 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 recognizes that to make an to if if, if we're going to see an effective transition to an ecological socialist society then you need to start with the ordin- the people who are going to make the new world the the ordinary people um and he looks at um He's an anthropologist who's done ethnography of um, people whose lives have been affected by wind turbines. This is where I learned. This is where I learned about the bird watchers, by the way. Right, <laughs> this book, right. Who owns the wind? Yeah. In that book, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And reading that book um, again reaffirms in me the sense that uh, if uh, an eco-socialist program is to reach out to workers en masse, you have to have something to say, and this is what Sabrina's been talking about on the question of job security and. Um, and so climate jobs programs that the sort that I've been involved in here in Britain in the past and have been developed elsewhere in the world, I think are, need to be um, front and center of movement activity for eco-socialists as well. Um, and, you know, if you're a Green New Dealer or a degrowther, you can, um, there's nothing about a climate jobs program that you can't get involved with. It's crucial because what one of the great Problems that we face on questions on the question of material well-being that you were you David were raising through the Matt Huber argument is that if people are fearful for their jobs and they fear that uh, environmental transition will um, uh, cut that that basic support for their their livelihoods will be just robbed from them then that's the surefire way to um, to uh, get 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 them. Uh, to engender opposition. Um, so job security, it seems to me, is absolutely fundamental. But um, I don't. Be- I, I think we can. I think we have to gamble on the fact that um, that most people can lead very very happy lives if they have reasonably comfortable and secure uh, livelihoods. They don't. People aren't driven to constantly acquire more. I, I don't believe. Um, so we. So when when. Uh, Matt Huber in the quote that you read from um, talks of material well-being. I, I think we can say yes, um, material basic material needs being met and a reasonable quality of life being met is 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 important, but not endless expansion of our needs. And then it, when when we look at a country like the United States of America, it becomes quite tricky because the United in the United States energy use per capita is double that in Europe. It's double that in Britain, for for example. Um, the the average quality of life in Britain is perfectly reasonable, um, uh, but and and the United States, you you, it's indefensible, I think, to argue that um, the 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 scale of energy use that we see in the in the United States uh, can be retained, because then you're arguing if you're a socialist, therefore an internationalist, you're arguing that everyone around the world has to have this level of energy use, and if you do the sums, you quickly realize that we would have to um, uh, carpet the entire world with um, uh, uh, wind turbines and and nuclear power stations. Um, 
tens of thousands of them to produce the sort of energy um, that that program would require. And so this, this is why I keep on coming back to the fact that the basic arithmetic dictates that in the rich world, there has to be a reduction in energy use. And, and I fear that the Jacobin types, I mean, Jacobin is a broad church. You, I think, David, were mentioning Huber's argument. Um, that sort of um, perspective needs to um, look at those numbers a little with a little more care, I think. Yeah, and I think as you both already said in, in very articulate ways, it's a question about, you know, digging deeper into what we understand by working class well-being, right? Um, it's talking about a, a quality of life and, you know, delinking that from the certain, you know, forms of consumption that it, in countries like the U.S. and Canada, where it's come to be associated with. Um, so it's a question, I think, of, of digging deeper and talking about, yes, improving people's quality of life, but that also means changing how people live within the imperialist countries in, in important ways. Also, I think it's worth pointing out in this context that, um, you know, given where capitalism is going, the way people have uh, been living in the, you know, better off working class people in countries like the US and Canada are not, they're not going to be uh, still offered the same um, kinds of things that they've been offered as capital's attack on working class living standards intensifies. So um, that also needs to be brought into the discussion. But there's another argument that, that comes from people uh, in that particular quarter of the left that we've been engaging with, uh, which argues that you know, you're talking about the need to win all sorts of reforms. You're talking about um, the, the Green New Deal, all sorts of investment, but also the expansion of uh, various kinds of social protection, for, for example, if we're going to get job security for, for people and, and so on. Um, and winning those kinds of reforms under capitalism, they might argue, looking to the history of capitalism, uh, can't happen unless there's economic growth. So the argument gets made then from a certain sector of the left that, you know, if you're trying to win these changes under capitalism, it's not possible unless you also have cap capitalist economic expansion. Would either of you like to respond directly to that argument? Yeah, I'd respond by um, plugging an article that is has just appeared online and um, is freely available and addresses precisely this point. It's by Jack Copley, and it's called Decarbonizing the Downturn, Addressing Climate Change in an Age of Stagnation. And he's putting his finger on exactly this problem, which is... Um, you know, uh, uh, profit rates are declining. Economic growth per capita is is in decline, and so we're not in a. And debt levels um, have been rising year by year, decade by decade. So there's more and more that we're imposing on our on the future to bail us out, so to speak. Uh, and so the constraints on states are just growing more and more severe. Um, there's less and less easy money around to fund uh, a transition. Um, and so, that, you know, that, that is why at the end of the day, we, we have to get back to questions of redistribution and anti-capitalism and class struggle that, that we have to mobilize from below to force states to act. Um, economy, economies are ultimately just arrangements of human beings undertaking labor um, so it's a political question how that labor is arranged. And the transition, uh, 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 an ecologically effective and um, socially just transition could could quite feasibly be um, achieved, but it requires enormous pressure from below. I can't see, for partly for the reasons that Jack Copley discusses in the piece I mentioned, I, I find it hard to um, uh, see states um, simply 
out of a recognition of their own interest in establishing a general framework for successful capital accumulation in the long term, I, I, I can't uh, foresee governments um, implementing the scale of changes that are, that are, that are required to keep the planet uh, more or less habitable. And this is also like coming from the standpoint that we're going to need a lot of pressure. It also has to be very international pressure, right? Um, because they are in places where you find governments that might be willing to take a step further. They might be vulnerable in other ways, you know, because their economies are dependent in other places or because there are, you know, imperialist interventions uh, where they are. Um, so that the level of international support, coordination, talking in terms of, you know, creating international campaigns, agreements, social movements, sharing best practices on how to, to apply this pressure, I think is quite important here. Um, this is what helps to draw the line between, especially if we're talking about a Green New Deal approach, um, you know, perspectives that we bring in a lot of state investment, but they will be done through public institutions, towards public goods, creating good jobs that will help and, you know, to build healthier economies and healthier communities. And this idea of the Green New Deal is just an investment package that you know, a lot of the, of the green capitalist companies can benefit from, or as we've been seeing lately, even uh, fossil capital gets to benefit from it. If you just throw at them, they, they can use like carbon capture technologies or other things like that. And, you know, take take a piece of the process or, you know, what's happening with the European Union painting fossil gas and nuclear power as green in a way that helps to divert investment from what should be going towards all, you know, renewables into those areas because, well, now it's green. Now you can meet your targets in terms of, you know, the, the financial companies and the state in terms of how much money they put in, in green energy, right? Perhaps we should also directly take on, uh, just briefly, it could be a whole episode on its own, but uh, the question of nuclear power, because this is something which gets brought up, including by, you know, by comrades who... Uh, are very committed to an eco-social transformation of one kind or another, uh, but who argue that in fact, it's necessary to have nuclear power as part of the vision um, for the, the transition. So uh, what are your thoughts about the question of maintaining or even expanding uh, nuclear power as a source of electricity during the transition away from fossil fuels that we obviously all agree is desperately needed? Well, the good news on uh, the nuclear question is that renewable energy now is is much much cheaper than than the nuclear. So there's just there's no even even in pure capitalist utilitarian uh, terms, there's no need for nuclear power. And forms of storage and smoothing over um, supply uh, fluctuations from renewables are developing all the time. Uh, and a couple of other points I would add, uh, you know, that are are that um, you know nuclear power? Uh, the, the 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 problem of waste of nuclear power has still not been solved. Um, it's been we've had nuclear power stations for the last eighty years or something, uh, and scientists have been trying to develop forms of safe waste disposal, and they haven't. I was struck um, a few years ago um, when I was reading about the schemes that are being devised. Um, to communicate to future inhabitants of this 
planet 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 years from now that, that the territory that they're approaching is um, uh, highly radioactive due to uh, human beings, uh, however many thousand years prior to them, having dumped their waste there. And the, the, some semioticians devised this scheme of, um, you know, uh, uh, perhaps, um, perhaps we could genetically engineer rodents or cats so that they glow when they approach these um, waste camp, waste uh, areas, nuclear, highly irradiated areas. And um, so future inhabitants of the planet, future earthlings would, would be warned. Problem there is that... Um, you know, what if I saw a, a glowing creature, I might start worshiping it and congregate around this area, and then, um, and then I and my loved ones would all um, keel over from, from cancer. It's a flippant point in a sense, but it it actually um, attests to something very very serious, which is that the waste problem hasn't been fixed in any way. And nuclear power power plants are potentially going to become more and more dangerous as well. You know, this with Fukushima was a tsunami. Well, as climate change melts the polar ice, we're going to see an increasing uh, increasing levels of earthquake and volcanic activity as the Earth's crust is bent and creaked out of out of the shape it had previously been in. So I, I don't know whether we, there are going to be any fewer tsunamis happening. Possibly, possibly more. The the rivers in France um, that cool the nuclear power stations are being um, uh, are dried up to such an extent that the power stations can't can't run anymore, um, and it's causing all, all sorts of problems. Over in Ukraine, we're seeing what can happen when um, society, when countries go to war. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and and Russia's occupation of the enormous nuclear power plant there um, could lead to uh, infernal uh, damage if it is struck by a missile, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so these these so just this year, we're seeing um, some very powerful new arguments against uh, nuclear power. I, I don't think it's something that eco-socialists should really entertain. The thing for me around nuclear power um, is that, yes, all the arguments around how technology has evolved around it, so reactor today is not the same thing as it was 30 years ago, even the systems of storage are not the same ways as before, but obviously nuclear power is uh, something that leaves very, very, very long-lasting effects. Right. So um, technology will develop, but all the generation, the next generation is always dealing with the older technology and the risks implied by the older technology. Right. So um, if you're dealing with, with matters around storage, you know, how much can you actually measure in terms of corrosion? Uh, now, if we're talking about hundreds of years or thousands of years into the future, this is something that's really hard to measure. You can have scientific confidence, but it's where you have a little a little bit of a margin of error and the margin of error could lead to something really, really bad, right? We already know that one of the elements when we're discussing the, the great acceleration is how you know the radi uh, radiation levels on Earth have increased in the past year. So great acceleration is, a, is a, a way for us to think of the ecological crisis beyond the climate crisis. There are many other things involved here. But that said, I'm not a person who's um, not part of a camp that says shut down all the nuclear plants and everything like that. One, what I really think our focus in terms of politics should be here is that 
nuclear is not a viable option today if we're talking about energy transition because of basic things. Like even if we're not talking about the, the risks connected to war, like Gareth mentioned, or the risks connected to radiation, it's such slow deployment. It's absolutely slow deployment. And nuclear plants have a tendency to go over budget and never meet their deadlines of, of uh, inauguration, right? So like um, the one of France is now talking about nationalizing EDF completely, right? And France is very reliable on, on nuclear power so much that it's dealing with this huge crisis because of the droughts right now. Um, and uh, the Flammaville Flam, 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 plants there, um, I actually like looked at those numbers earlier. And originally it was supposed to cost 3.3 billion euros. And right now it uh, probably is going to cost 12.7 billion euros. So this is the difference from, you know, the, the planning and the actual cost today, right? And it was supposed to start running in 2012. Now they think the end of 2023, right? So nuclear plants from a very basic, even if we took away all of this conversation, because they're always accusing us of like fear mongering when we talk about the risks. So let's say, even if nuclear was like very safe technology involved to the point of no concerns at all, it's still, if we're talking about the level of energy transition that we need now, actually for yesterday, right? But that we need immediate nuclear cannot, uh, cannot you know, fulfill our immediate needs in terms of, you know, um, transition and energy deployment around renewables. It, it can't, right? It, it takes a really, really long time. And it's also the type of energy that we need to consider when we're talking about our job being not just mitigating climate change, but also adapting to climate change. And I want to throw, for example, hydropower in the in the in the mix here because the droughts right now, if we consider Norway and China, um, countries that have bet on the renewables around hydropower, they're both having problems producing enough electricity out of hydropower this year because of the droughts, right? And Norway is very dependent on hydropower electricity. So they're having issues around that. And China is now saying, because, you know, you have a huge drought affecting the Yangtze River and the tributaries, um, they're going to have to focus on coal again, right? So if we don't plan our energy transition away from fossil fuels around adaptation as well, you're actually you're actually maybe delaying the transition because you're creating these loopholes where fossil fuels can just come back in. So right now in Europe, fossil fuels coming back in because of the, the war on Ukraine, because while well, we need no, we need to be burning coal again in Germany because we cannot, you know, we cannot move fast enough. And we had made this promise about. Um, deactivating our nuclear plants. And now we're regretting this, right? There's part of the conversation um, uh, uh, in the debates around energy in Germany right now. But the reality is, is this, if we don't do planning that's also around adaptation, we're going to run into a lot of issues, issues. So if we're dealing with intermittency, so this problem that around renewables that you know, the sun is not always shining in one particular spot and the wind is not always blowing in a particular spot. We have to have a mix in our energy grid and we need this mix to be connected, yes, to proper storage. And that relates us to thinking that maybe our strategic minerals should be going to this kind of storage and not a bunch of like a billion electric vehicles. This requires a lot of planning. And the issue for me around nuclear power is that usually people who just throw nuclear power in the mix, 
because they don't want to deal with the complicated questions around planning or because they want to say that, no, but you're talking about, you know, uh, limits to energy production and electricity. No way. We can have everything shiny and 100 TVs because we have nuclear power and you're just, you know, throwing the fear mongering at it. So if I if I come from a place of like good faith that they're like, People, and I think it's important that, you know, we make a lot of scientific advancements in terms of storage because there's already a lot of nuclear waste. So we need to be dealing with this uh, nuclear waste management and governance, which is another matter, right? Governance uh, is also a global issue. And it's important to, to develop in that standpoint, but my main problem here is people throwing nuclear in the mess, mix as if it could be the foundation of an energy transition away from fossil fuels. And if we look at the numbers, you know, the concrete reality is that the technology that we have available today and the pace and cost of nuclear today is just not feasible. So we shouldn't paint it green. We shouldn't make it part of our, of our strategy. We should be focusing on renewables that can be easily implemented. They are becoming cheaper, like Gareth mentioned, and we should be focused on doing this in a coordinated way that deals with demand and supply issues so we don't create more sacrifice zones along the way and make, you know, some destroy some ecosystems and create, you know, make communities into you know, uh, completely dispendable communities just so we can keep the energy levels absolutely high or even higher in other places. And the point that Sabrina makes about um, the time that it takes to, to develop nu nuclear fission plants, the same point about time applies to nuclear fusion, which a lot of people are um, increasingly expressing hopes in because, you know, it would be a relatively clean technology and it would be quite a marvelous energy source if it's ever developed, but there's no possibility of it being um, developed in the next 10, 20 years, which is the time frame where we really need to see um, radical change if we're not gonna if we're not gonna um, see escalating uh, feedback mechanisms dr driving runaway warming um, uh, into a trap from which uh, the, the, the earth would be unrecoverable for human existence really. Yeah, again, again, the point is that sometimes socialists are trying to outsource our job of planning, coordinating, and educating for a transition into technology and saying that, you know, if if a problem still exists because technology hasn't advanced enough, maybe the problem still exists because we haven't tackled it properly and we have done that in a collective way and working from like a good faith standpoint here. Speaking of technological fixes, <laughs> uh, which capitalism, for understandable reasons, is pushing us towards in all sorts of ways, I think there's another technology which is going to become more politically important given global heating, and that's solar radiation management in the form of spraying aerosolized particles into the atmosphere to reflect more solar radiation and therefore prevent further heating, you know, solar radiation management or, or SRM. I think we're going to be hearing more about this uh, in the coming years, and it's going to be increasingly important for the left to have you know, a lot of political clarity on how we approach this. How do you think we should approach this um, this question at this point? Well, I, I think um, I've mentioned before that I, I think, um, I mentioned before in this conversation that I think um, we're, we, we really are looking at um, uh, catastrophic prognoses um, for this planet on which we live. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's far-fetched to consider um, scenarios of 
civilizational collapse or even extinction of the human species. The the study I mentioned of um of the the you know the Caltech study of stratocumulus cloud disappearance if 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 we reach four degrees over pre-industrial levels. I mean, if I mean these are fat tales that you're talking about. These aren't necessarily the most likely scenarios, but um even that they are deemed possible makes you shudder uh, because that would be a 12 degree in total um, uh, rise in global temperatures, which would just absolutely obliterate human life and the life of most mammals. Now, um, one of the most plausible scenarios uh, for an extremely severe temperature rise is the termination shock that would follow um, the, the termination of solar, a solar radiation management experiment of the type that you mentioned. And some, you know, the, the this is, um, you can read about this in, I think it's Naomi Oreski's book um, first um, painted this scenario where the world gets hooked on, on SRM geoengineering. Uh, and then something happens that forces uh, it to be switched off. Perhaps a war, geopolitical conflict is very, uh, very plausible candidate. Um, and so it gets switched off, upon which the, the rebound would be absolutely uh, astonishing in, in pace and scale. And so with those sorts of scenarios in mind, you know, it's clear that uh, we should oppose SRM. There's something really odd to me to think that in our search for solutions to a system that completely um, threw nature out of its equilibrium point, what we're going to do now is make it worse <laughs> and create an equilibrium point that depends on geopolitics, that, that uh, depends on a particular type of technology being maintained for a really long time and could create other problems. So it's it always gets to, you know, the, the whole Mark Fisher um, paradigm, right? Like, um, you know, imagining the end of the world. Like, no, we, we can imagine like really, really, really crazy things and we can put all of our thoughts and sometimes investment into it, but we can't we can't really imagine, like Fisher said, uh, actually ending capitalism. So sometimes this makes its way into our, our leftist camp as well. Just, I think it connects a little bit to some level of melancholy, you know, not having enough victories and, you know, uh, low levels of organizing, low levels of mobilization that uh, let's hope, you know, someone else can do this for us or something like SRM, you know, if we, if we can fix this, SRM is going to save us in the end. Um, well, the worse that it gets, the more that you, you know, the more tweaking that you're going to have to do in terms of SRM. So the risks go higher. Also in terms of like very, very small scale, you can all uh, already um, set like a hydrological cycle in a state of complete disarray. And once you do that, that can affect, you know, how you're growing food. It can lead to terrible monsoons in one area, more droughts in other area that in turn is going to affect your nuclear plants because you won't be able to, you know, cool off uh, the reactors uh, the same way as before. And then some people might say, oh, just kill the river. There's no problem. Just throw the hot water in the already warming river, which is the huge debate in France right now. Um, and then it makes me question people is, if their goal when they're talking about tackling climate change is actually ecological or not. Because if it's just about maintaining, you know, capitalist society, then yes, you can do all of those things. 
You can do all of that. You, you can stretch it along the way so much that you have the billionaires thinking about, you know, capitalism in space. You can just keep stretching forever. But if the perspective at the bottom is ecological, um, then I think we need to consider other things along the way and including some boundaries here are what we're messing with and what we're not. I'm not a person to say that you shouldn't, you know, like, let's just like, I'm, I don't want to censor science in terms of, you know, thinking into things or kind of develop developments uh, can be done here, especially because we always know that in terms of scientific development, sometimes you're developing one thing and you have a discovery that leads into something else that's positive. So uh, I think it's important to study uh, what's going on around it, but whether this gets implemented is something else. And we already know of experiments being made without a proper system of governance, right? And this is not just for SRM. It's just thinking like geoengineering, geoengineering as a system is quite complicated because where are the ethics behind it? Who's controlling it? You know, you have billionaires pumping. We know like Bill Gates is the big example of like his investment portfolio. He loves this kind of stuff. But you have these people pumping money into certain technologies that when they when they get to talk about them being feasible or not, it means that they have been testing some of these things, right? And what it means when they're testing SRM technologies you know, on the coast of Australia, what it means for the biodiversity in the area and what this could mean in terms of affecting these hydrological cycles. These are really, really big questions when we're talking about, about technology here. And my my big worry, again, around the, the techno fixes that I think they distract us. They distract us from easier things that are ahead um, that we can provide, but are harder in the sense of organizing and mobilizing. So they're harder in the sense of movement building. But if we are socialists and eco-socialists, if we have this kind of perspective, movement building is at the core of it anyway, because movement building is not just to save the planet from ecological collapse. It's also to you know emancipate the working class so we should be doing that anyway and i think this is where where eco-socialism you know helps us address two problems at once our movement building will help us save the earth and save the earth for an emancipated uh class of workers right so i think that's the the big advantage of like this matchmaking here well you've actually just pointed us i think towards the last thing i'm hoping we can talk about before we wrap up um, which is really some of the more immediate uh, things that we're confronting um, at, at the, in this conjuncture, uh, with a rising cost of living, um, whole number of you know, whole number of places, workers demanding higher pay, and other forms of relief from that rising cost of living. Um, central banks driving up interest rates in response to the situation we're facing a recession, which will drive up unemployment. Um, you know, I've just been seeing in the news, Gareth, the news about the estimates about what the the costs of home heating are going to be for working class people in Britain um, in the coming winter. Um, but of course, it's not just going to be there. So in that kind of situation, there are all sorts of politics around the cost of living and the immediate concerns of working class people and mobilizations around those concerns. So I guess the, the question then for us is, what kind of distinctive contribution do eco-socialists have to make to those kinds of discussions about the, the immediate situation of working class people um, as th their lives come under these increased stresses and, and so on. I think I think public transportation, I'm gonna go back to it because this is one of the, the things that I like working with because it connects to so many things, right? Germany issued the nine euro ticket so that people you know would be encouraged to take on public transit. 
rather than using individual cars. And that would help to soften this pressure in terms of the, 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 the energy supply in Germany. But it's not enough for you to make it cheap. You also need to invest into infrastructure. You need to put, you know, more bus routes. You need to educate people around it. And they, this is one of the things where I think we have a good job of saying, yes, good idea, but we need to go further. And our job dealing, for example, with the issue around the, the, the cost of living crisis and is showing that a really great way of addressing the cost of living crisis, actually reducing the cost of living is through, you know, transition approaches. Is And in Brazil, I would say that the inflation right now and the pressure on food prices and how that has impacted food insecurity can only be properly addressed if we're also talking about agrarian reform, if we're also talking about um, uh, like settling indigenous territory, and we're also talking about, um, you know, uh, bringing the Amazon back into an equilibrium. So we actually have a window, not of opportunity here, but a window of responsibility here to understand the crisis um, that the working class is facing uh, today um, as a way of being very strategic about what we're proposing. And this sometimes means educating people through making things cheaper, but we also need to make things more convenient. And what's happening right now is exactly the opposite, right? So the cost of living crisis is being used um, as a way to, you know, go into, you know, talking about like interest rates as the way of actually managing the costs, rather, for example, uh, having regulating stocks or uh, rather than thinking that, wow, the war made us even more vulnerable in terms of our energy supply, let's go back into more terrible fossil fuel rather than you know, speeding up our energy transition. The opposite is happening. And this is precisely our issue here because it's re reinforcing this idea that there is no alternative. You go back into it. This is something that um, has made me in particular very frustrated because Brazil, like we're coming up with an election right now. We want to get rid of Bolsonaro and like, and but getting rid of Bolsonaro doesn't mean that we're going to get rid of the far right, which is a completely different matter. Um, and part of the, the left and the environment, environmental movement has, no, has been pushing uh, for the Lula campaign to be bolder when it comes to transition conversations and, you know, tackling climate change. But then Lula was, when he was answering a question in an interview about the Colombian proposal for phasing out fossil fuels, something that Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez were talking about during the elections, during the campaign, before they got elected, because they understood that to be something powerful uh, in their campaign. And indeed, it was powerful. It, was, uh, it, it helped to, to reunite a lot of the demands in the country. Well, Lula was saying, well, but even Germany is going back on coal and going back on nuclear now. So we can't keep, transition is not a conversation for now. And it's it's disheartening for me to see that the left sometimes is the one telling itself that we can't do things, that we can't do things. And I think our jobs as equal socialists is to make sure that whenever there's a crisis, there's a bunch of ways of going about it. Um, and the hegemonic way, the mainstream way, is usually the way that reinforces the status quo and takes us back into the past. And our job is to be very, very bold because the crisis is very radical and these crises are not isolated. 
You know, they're part of how the capitalist system works. The capitalist system is a system of crisis. It is um, uh, the modus operandi. And our job here is actually to connect these things. And uh, it makes a lot more sense if we if we're the ones to say that, well, that's enough. Um, and these are the concrete proposals that we have. I have this sense that because the ecological left is marginal in a left that's already been losing for a really long time, um, uh, we're not we're not far enough as we should be in terms of like being the ones that show that we have the alternative, which is obviously uh, something that, that the far right has been able to bank on saying that, well, they're, they're the ones that are actually anti-systemic, right? And we need to reclaim this anti-systemic power, not just in our words, um, but, you know, connecting proposals to, to the movements themselves. Yeah, I'd, I'd go along with um, everything that Sabrina's been saying here and just add maybe partly with the local context here in Britain. I think for, for the left to respond to the cost of living crisis is for, involves, first of all, um, making clear at every opportunity that this is a crisis that the, the existing regime has prepared. Um, banking on fossil fuels has been a disaster, not only for the environment, but for people's wallets now. It's ordinary people are being asked to pay for this crisis. Uh, and so the response has to be to nationalize the energy companies, to tax them and tax them until they die and shift as much of the funds as you can into renewables. Um, and to find uh, the policy in Britain, especially the land of leaky houses, the land of cold weather and leaky houses, has been to ignore the need to insulate and retrofit homes. And so for the left, this can be a demand for climate jobs spent retrofitting and insulating homes. So addressing questions of job security, um, decent trade union jobs um, to uh, repair and and pr prepare Britain's housing stock for the for the crises to come and to um, wean us off a reliance on on fossil fuels. Um, this is why the campaign that I think was it was a spin-off from Extinction Re Rebellion, um, the campaign called in Insulate Britain was so effective in raising this in public consciousness. Um, and I think this also is for, for the left, it's it involves the cost of living crisis um, requires us also to intensify our mobilizations around other issues on uh, which are squeezing the pockets of working class people, above all rent. So, uh, you know, Britain is a country of very, very high house prices and rent prices where people spend a third or a half of their income on on rent and so there you know there needs to be a revival of um anti-landlord political mobilization and and the demand for rent controls this was something that was aired to some extent here on under the brief period of corbyn's leadership jeremy corbyn's leadership labor party but um there are other forces um pushing in this direction as well so Question of cost of living raises an, is an interesting one in the longer term perspective. Um, whether we are entering an era of um, basic goods in food and in fuels becoming more and more expensive in, in, a, in a secular sense in the long term, an upward ratchet due to the uh, increasing 
problems growing food cheaply in a warming world with all the floods and droughts and so on that we've just been seeing this summer. That's a question that I don't have the expertise to answer, but I, th- but I know some very interesting people are working on this. Um, and then more broadly, if we step back and look at the, the era in which we live, it looks to me, um, uh, and I'm sh- uh, uh, increasingly as one of um, intensifying turbulence, both, both in terms of you know, U.S. hegemonic decline and the rise of China, giving giving rise to a more um, geopolitically uncertain and and possibly warlike epoch. It's the era of climate change with the polarization around that issue that we're we're seeing, um, and 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 so on. So these this seems to me to be the broader context in which the left has to situate situate itself at the moment and and in the years to come. Sabrina and Gareth, I'd like to thank you. You've, I think, given listeners a lot to think about, both in terms of the, you know, the, the kind of eco-socialist vision that the situation calls for, but also, um, you know, the, the more immediate situation that we find ourselves in and how we might be trying to translate that vision into how we engage with the problems of the here and now. Thanks very much. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcasts wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.